describes acts of extreme violence in graphic detail and may include discussions about demonology and the occult, topics that caused widespread panic during the 1980s. This content may not be suitable for children under the age of 50. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. I'm James. I'm Dan. And uh, we are from the Bluegill Tavern in Narian today, Dan. Oh, what's so special about that? So the Bluegill Tavern, well, what's special about it is it's the hangout for local riffraff. Ah, riff. I love riffraff. And great, hoods. Great tone. Great what's, there, tune. what's there between riffraff and a hood? Uh, it's hoods. It says hood. riffraff and hoods. Ah, that's, is that like utes? <laughs> the two utes. The two utes. Uh, known locally for its... You're going to love this place. Mm-hmm. Cheap booze. Uh-huh. I uh, like it. Uh, like, we thought the beer was free. Cheap booze and frequent fights. However, it is a good place to make underworld connections, but it is not terribly good for picking up rumors or information. The bartender is untrustworthy and a prolific liar. Oh, we're probably not supposed to know that stuff. Ah, uh, that's probably more than we were supposed to know. The Bluegill Tavern is from... The Pit of Oracle. Ah, the Pit of Oracle. Let's, let's give a golf clap for that. Uh, clapping. Yes. The Thank Pit you. of Oracle. Thank you, folks. Thank you, folks. Showing appreciation. Uh, from Dragon Magazine, an adventure from uh, back in the day. And if you hang around for two and a half hours, right, you may find that there is a connection between today's show and the Pit of Oracle. Is that like a tease you're trying to do? Yes, exactly. Trying to do... Anything to get them to hang out for two and a half hours. Right. Well, we, we, they, I did announce on Twitter and on Discord that the tease is there. So it's not much of a tease if they've listened to it. But it's also in the title of our uh, YouTube thing. But if you haven't done that, yes, come back at 1030. And yes, we have switched positions. Actually, for those longtime listeners and viewers, we are in a new studio. That's right. This is a third move. And again, for our longtime listeners and viewers... This is the arrangement we had. I was to the right of you. You were to the left of me. Back in the day. Back when we were in the first Originally, place, right. We were this way. And then we moved here. And then because of the technology constraints, I had to be the other way. And now we switched around. But yes, we're in our new studio. And we're very excited to uh, be here. So there, there could be some technical glitches. But we're, we're moving forward. There's a lot more room. I need to get some treatment because it's a little bit of an echo. Uh, and we keep expanding and growing as the Grog Empire does. Mm-hmm. Our voracious appetite for power and land. Not necessarily getting better. No. But changing. We're, we're moving from the Roman period to the Byzantine period. <laughs> we're getting larger and more uh, decadent. Un- <laughs> decadent and unwieldy. 
Well, you uh, know, the fall of the Roman Empire was due to internal strife. That's right. Who is our internal strife? Well, well, that would be you and me. Oh, well, are we a biumphorant? Right? Wasn't there a triumphant? At one point, there were like three emperors. At one <laughs> no, time. we need to bring someone else in here for that. Biumphorant, that's I it. I remember, I believe it was a republic, and then it became an empire, right? Correct, if I, my, if my history serves me. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome to the, hi everyone, first time on Grog Talk stream. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad you're here, Syrup. So, moving on. It gets better. It does get Don't better. Don't leave. Support Grog Talk by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com backslash grog talk. All right, let's see. I got that, I got that. I see some, so, so Dan, who do we have in our little figure now? We have Steve Sullivan. He was a TSR editor and artist during the early days of D&D. He also helped found Pace Setter Limited, the creators of Chill, and other award-winning games. Steve, welcome to Grog Talk. Yes. Hey, great to be here. It's good to see you guys. And thanks. So early in the morning for me. Because you, you're Midwest, correct? You're Wisconsin? Yeah, I'm in the Midwest. So it's an hour earlier, and I'm an, a, an owl. And you guys are clearly larks. <laughs> <laughs> Starting so early on a Saturday? Really? <laughs> we, 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 did, we did it for our spouse. So we decided if we were going to do a podcast and take away weekend time from the family, that we should do it at a time when everyone else was sleeping. That, that makes perfect sense. So a lot of the interviews I do, I do. My wife works late one night a week, and a lot of times that's the night I choose. So it, cutting out the time that's not family time, perfect. My wife is working today, so this is actually a, a good day to do this, which is why we picked it. Awesome. Even though, and we're thrilled. Thank, thank God we're on this side of the time change, because tomorrow I'm going to be really out of it. Oh, yeah, I'll bet. I, I ran at GaryCon one year. I was stupid enough to run an 8 a.m. game, because I was flying out. It was Sunday, an 8 a.m. game, and the time changed. And so it's <laughs> you can imagine. And on a, on a Sunday at 8 a.m., too, which is not, <laughs> there's three days of partying there you can that imagine. are not. You can imagine. Did you have any people at all? Yes, yeah, uh, most of the tickets did not go redeemed. Let's just put it that way. I did. I had, I think, three, three showed up, and maybe one was wandering by, and I wrote to it. So yeah. So right. Uh, and you, speaking of Wisconsin, and we'll get to this because we have to start with you know your life story, of course. But you, you, you ended up in Wisconsin, I assume, because of TSR taking the job, and it looks like you've never left. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's correct. Got it. Because you, you're that's correct, and that happened simultaneously with me starting dating the woman who is now my wife, who grew up in Kenosha. So, oh, okay. Well, we we shall ask. We love those stories. Uh, and and we, just just for our folks who are online, if you have questions for Steve, um, you know, obviously we'll do our normal grilling of five hundred questions. But if there's questions that you would have about his career, just put it in the chat, and we'll. Uh, uh, Steve has graciously accepted uh, taking uh, questions from the audience. So, again, please put that in the yep, chat. I don't think I'll see them because we don't want to juggle the video and stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you them once they, I'm kind of the moderator awesome. here. So, go ahead, Stan. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no worries. No worries. So, uh, it, Illinois, you, you were born in Illinois, right? Yep. And the reason I asked that, which ordinarily, who cares, right? But, but is so many of these old school D&D people seem to be from the Midwest. Do you, the fact that you're from Illinois, do you think that led to your early exposure to D&D or no? No. Not at all. So <laughs> Not tell, at all. Tell us. 
I was born in Illinois because my dad was uh, studying to be a minister at the time, and there's a seminary in the Quad Cities. So that's where I was when he was studying, and then uh, in my when I was a little, little kid, before my memories start, we moved around um, depending upon where he was ministering. So we were in Minnesota for a while, then we moved to New Jersey, and New Jersey is where my memories start, but the family was from Massachusetts. So when I was six, uh, just before I turned seven, we moved back to Massachusetts, and that's where I spent the rest of my life until I moved to Lake Geneva. Got it. So, so, so what was your first exposure to D&D? I grew up in Sharon, Massachusetts, and Sharon was an early adopter of D&D. Hmm. There were uh, a lot of super smart people there and a lot of gamers, and... I think at the time I was exposed to it, while there was at least one game master and it was probably 1975, it could have been even earlier. Um, but by the time I started seriously playing in 1977, I think there were four or five dungeon masters in my high school cohort. Wow. Right? Yeah. So there were a lot, a lot of DMs. And when I first was exposed to it, it was uh, a small group, and you know, I was interested in fantasy and science fiction and stuff. And I, I knew uh, the people in the group, and I was like, okay, I'll sit on in on this. But I was also a, a Tolkien purist <laughs> at the time. You know, Tolkien was my be all end all for a lot of high school, and I didn't join the D and G group because it was like, this is Tolkien blasphemy. I am not going to deal with this. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. but it's blasphemy. So. <laughs> were, there, were, what, were, were there specific things that you recall being blasphemous about it? No, it was just that it seemed like it was watered down Tolkien to me. It's a derivative. Uh, like, you know, when like I say notes. blasphemy, that's obviously, right. you know, hyperbole. It's obvious. Yeah, it's a, it was, you know, again, looking at it from that uh, uh, perspective, it's a derivative work that's a poor copy of the rich lore. I mean, if you don't really know right. about it, it's kind of like what I feel about gnomes. Gnomes are derivative of dwarves and halflings, and they don't have any reason to exist. <laughs> um, so I totally get that. I would never go that far. I love gnomes. <laughs> ah, all right. We got some questions for you. But that's, halflings. That's, <laughs> that's right. Halflings are clearly derivative blasphemous work. <laughs> so, so you've already answered. So, so this other group was playing, and I remember to this day that um, my, my friend Andy Guinness was one of the players, and he had boots of speed. And I remember watching these guys, and he was using his boots at speed. And of course, this is the the three book days, right? It's not even it's it's way pre AD and D. Uh, and I don't remember anything about the combats that they were having or anything. I just remember it was all heavily heavily role playing, which was really cool. And that's something that was kind of stressed out in our area. We weren't as much into the mechanics and mini maxing because uh, I love Gary. <laughs> And I've met Dave, and I admired him. But you can't really play the game from the original books. <laughs> you just kind of have to make it up as you go or learn it somewhere. And I have no idea where the game master, whose name was Mark Campbell, I have no idea where, who he'd seen, how he'd gotten it. He may just have gotten it from a really good game store up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, which may still be there. It's called The Games People Play, and it was there oh. for many, many, many years. And... It was the only place you could find any of this stuff when I started playing. I was going to ask you. So he may have seen it there. 
he may have gone he may have gone to Gen Con or Origins or something like that and seen it. I I don't know. I, you know, I didn't haven't seen him since high school, and I I never asked him. I don't think. So, but I got into the game to 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 meet girls. And hmm. I, that's that. How did that I, work? I, how did that work for you? That was, it worked brilliantly. Wow! Actually. Wow! <laughs> what did we do wrong? <laughs> Something horribly wrong. How did you that work well? Hard hard what? So the um, a, a friend of mine named Kaim Kaufman was running the game, and his sister Faith was just really cute beautiful woman uh you know we were in high school so i guess we were kids then um so he was game mastering and she was in his game uh. <laughs> and i was like you know if i start playing this D stuff with him i bet she and i might go out and we did we went out for a couple of years and then um, all of my significant girlfriends have have been gamers and that includes my wife who's been playing since 78 or 79 so interesting a couple of years after me and she actually went to school with that same guy that I first started playing with, which is how she and I met. And, and, you know, we've been together ever since. So 43 years now. Awesome. Well, yeah, which is, yeah. So playing, playing D and D to meet girls where I lived, that worked really well because there were women in these groups. Yeah. And you're not, and you're not alone in that, in that I think, um, you know, that first generate, you know, you're definitely, I'll call it first generation D and D player. Right. Um, it was much more mixed. It was to your point. It was it was a novel thing. I think Dan and I are kind of second generation in that we started in the late seventies, early eighties, and I'm sure groups were all over the place differently. But it clearly was not an opportunity to meet the opposite sex for us. Um, but right. we have, it's always funny to me that people are like you can't meet D- yeah. girls in D and D. I'm like. Uh, well, yes, 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 yeah. We have a good friend, the right place, right time. Yeah, we're friends. We have a good friend, Rob, who's been married to. He met his wife through D and D, so it's definitely something that uh, happened. It just didn't happen to us. So that says more about our charisma score than us. <laughs> We've been blaming it on D and D, right? It's, it was us. Well, and it could be where you where you grew up and where how the game came into the community and that kind of stuff. Because as I said, for us, it was it was a thing that was in the high school and no one was worried about it yeah. you know i got to be at tsr during the whole satanic panic thing but when i started playing that didn't exist it was all hey there's this there's this game these smart kids are playing and my high school was full of smart kids i was like i was like one of the dumb kids because i didn't go to harvard i was gonna ask that gonna... <laughs> or mit <laughs> i had to go to harvard or mit <laughs> Or Caltech or something like that. I was going to ask that because I was going to ask you where Sharon was because and you mentioned a store, the game store in Cambridge. So it sounds like that high school is it? It's it's populated by I guess people. I don't know. The parents had gone to Harvard and stayed in the area. Why were there so many smart people there? Um, I it's a Jewish town, and I'm not Jewish, but one of the things that the many of the Jewish people that I know, in fact, nearly all of them, value is education. So Sharon had a very strong education system, which is what lured my parents there when they returned to Massachusetts. It was like, let's find a place that has really good schools for our kids. And Sharon was that place. And it was named one of the best places in America to live just a few years ago, too. So it's still a small, smart suburb of Boston. It's for those of you who are sports fans, Sharon is right next to Foxborough where the Patriots play. Oh, so, so is it, and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the 
one of the Patriots quarterbacks lived next to one of my girlfriends. So oh, wow. when I was growing up and no one thought anything, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's Steve Grogan. He lives next door. To oh, Carson. yeah. Steve Grogan. <laughs> so Grogan you want to go over, yeah. Awesome. You want to go over his play, his place and play cards with his wife? I was like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. <laughs> Wait, you, you, you played cards with Steve Grogan. I played cards with Steve Grogan's wife. I never oh, met Steve. Got it. Because he was probably off on the road um, playing football, which he did very well for a very long he time. He did. He did. Uh, so you got, so were you not considered nerds? So was it, you weren't like outcasts? So like for so many of us. Oh, we were totally outcasts. Oh, you nerds. were. Oh, okay. <laughs> Even among the smart I, people, you were like, wow. Yeah, yeah I was among them. In, I, w- I was smart enough, not smart enough to, uh, I'm smart enough to know that I'm not the smartest person in the room. And that was really Dan obvious doesn't. because the, the people I was playing with, okay, the guy that was my DM and the girl I dated and her sister, they all got perfect scores on their SATs. Oh. 800, 800, all three of them. And they weren't even trying. Wow. <laughs> right? My, my best friend, uh, who was the best man at my wedding, he missed one. He missed one question, and ended up going to Caltech. And one of our fellow, one guy in our cohort, graduated from MIT. If I'm remembering this right, I believe he graduated from MIT in five years with three degrees as the valedictorian. So, so these were the people that I grew up around was playing with, and in that group. I'm not the smartest. I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box, but I'm I'm pretty smart. So what? Ha- so when all your friends went to Harvard and MIT and Caltech, and you didn't, and you got the, the thin envelopes, rejection I letters. In, Where did I you was, go? I'm an artist. Um, I'm an artist and a writer. And at the time, I was really concentrating on on doing my art. I wanted to uh, work for Marvel Comics or any of the big car comics companies. So I went to art school, but rather than doing something sensible but being into design, I got really interested in painting. And if I tried to get into Marvel Comics as a painter, well, many years later, Alex Ross uh, would break that barrier down pretty, pretty convincingly. Alex was, um, I, for people that don't know, I went from gaming to freelancing to doing gaming and comics and and then comics, and then finally into writing novels, which is what I mostly do now. But there was a, a point in the 80s where I, my life was a mix of gaming and comics, and I was in the Chicago comics scene, and Alex was the guy that would be at a party, and he'd have these beautiful samples, and we'd all go, oh, Alex, those are beautiful, but no one's ever going to hire you to do Matt. that. <laughs> which shows you what we knew. Anyway, I I was a painter, so I was going to... a what they now call UMass Dartmouth, which was then called SMU, which is a small school that my dad was an administrator at. So, you know, when you're kind of a middle-class family and you can get free tuition, right. you go where the free tuition is. And and what so and what years are we talking? Uh, I started college in 1977, and I left in 1980 to join TSR. Okay. I skipped my scene, my carefully set up senior year, which was going to be a wonderful breeze. And I went to, I'd, um, at that point, I, just before my senior year, I had placed second in TSR's Draw the Monster contest. And yeah, it was second, wasn't it? Second or third. And, 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 and who? It was third. 
And who who got who got honorable mention? Didn't you didn't you beat somebody? I think maybe. Yeah, <laughs> on the Dorado Monster Contest, I placed third, and Errol Otis got honorable mention, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> How great is that? So if you look up, yeah. So if you look up Art and Arcana, because I looked, yeah, there just to be, just to be in the index of this thing, that's got to be an honor, right? I mean, I've never seen that book actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> So I grabbed. I mean, I've, I maybe I've seen it from a distance, but I don't have a copy. Oh my goodness! They didn't send you. And one? they didn't call me to be in the artist of TSR thing. So mm. shame on you guys. Yeah. Hey, if you look for those of you at home, if you grab your art and arcana, and you look in the index, you will find Steve's name, page fifty-eight. And if you make your way to page fifty-eight of art and arcana, you will see that it says it has four drawings. And it says, the creature feature was a mail-in fan art contest opened in dragon number 13. Pictured here are the four winners. And now this is great, most notably. The other two, you sh they may not have invited you to that other thing, but you know, at least the other two people here only get mentioned. Most notably, third place, Stephen Sullivan. Second from the left, and honorable mention, Errol Otis. Third from the left. Who went on to long and memorable careers in Dungeon and Dragon? And it says careers. Careers. So they're talking, that's both of you guys. I was just going to show you because you hadn't seen it. So there you go. That's and the winner, I think, was Bob Charette, who I think, if I, if I remember right, the winning drawing was really cool. <laughs> it was the, I think they picked the right winner. And I think it was Bob Charette, was it? Well, and he was, he, he was the designer of. Um, Bushido, I think. Oh, wow. Well, they don't am, I, am I right about that? Is that Bob Charette who has the winning drawing, or do they not show the They winning? do not say. They show the four. They show the four, but they only mention by name you and Errol Otis. So the other two go nameless. So you have to show this. The one that here. has all the cool scale details and stuff. I think that's Bob's. Okay, because he... and, Yeah, you can... I can vaguely see it. Nope, that's the, there we go. Yeah, the one the one that's next to mine on the left. On the left, there you go. I think that's Bob Charette. Okay. But I could be I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I looked at that at that illustration in that magazine. And we pre-warned I pre-warned you last night that you will need to recall 40 year old 40 plus year old uh, facts of that. So, you know, you were Well, I remember these these kind of things partly because that helped me get my career. Yeah. And so I placed third in that contest, and then I played second in their dungeon design contest. Right, which is the next discussion, which, of course, is the Pit of Oracle. Oracle. So tell us about that. So tell us about, w w did this come out of a group that you were running? No. No, it was completely out of my head. I was in college at the time, and I had... I had the time to work on it. I thought this was an interesting thing to do. I'd, uh, I'd been happy to have won the other thing, which got me some, uh, some small prizes and stuff. And the prizes were pretty good for the or for the pit of the Oracle, including a, a complete set of D and D books signed by Gary, as I remember. Oh, no kidding! And yeah, and either fifty or a hundred dollars worth of TSR products. It was basically enough to get me everything significant that TSR had done at the time. Um, but being TSR, and I could appreciate this later, I won, and then I never heard from them. <laughs> and I went out to 
when I went out to Gen Con, I picked up my products. So uh, I was at Gen Con in 1979, 1980. Wait, did you have to go yeah. to Gen Con to pick them up? Yes. They said you have to come to... No, no, they would have gotten around oh, to it eventually. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, wow, they're playing that stuff. We need to do stuff like that. Broadcon. Go to our convention to right. pick up your winnings. Uh, eventually, they would have gotten around to sending it to me, I'm sure. Okay, well, we got to ask this question, and I know this may be a very sad story. Where uh, Do you still have those books? I do. Oh, Okay. I do. I, and I what? know exactly where they're. I have a huge archive of Knockwood that, uh, in this house that I live in. This, and we uh, have his address in Wisconsin, correct? <laughs> yeah, can you put up your address? Yeah, we have a do question one of our viewers. Show links uh, if we put your address up in a, a 3D yeah, image. Yeah, don't do that, please. <laughs> so did you... Okay, was, was Gen, you went to Gen Con 79, you said? 79 and 80. Uh, where, where was Gen Con at that point? Because I know it bounced around from venues, right? Gen, yeah, Gen Con was in Parkside okay. at that moment. And that turned out to be really precipitous, or, or it was really a good thing. Fortuitous. Was there. Yeah. Fortuitous, that's what I was looking for. Precipitous, I'm like, that's wrong. <laughs> There's proprietous, I that's think right. is what I was saying. But fortuitous, yeah, because in 1980, uh, my wife, my now wife, her family lived an, a mile, literally a mile from Parkside. Wow. So a bunch of us were going out in 1980 and including my, my DM friend who, who had started me in the game and he went to college with her and she's a gamer and she, because she learned in college from him and some other people. And so we ended up staying at her parents' house in a, and they had a, they had a pop-up trailer or something. We stayed there at their house, sleeping on the floor, sleeping in the trailer and stuff, and Amazing. went to the convention. And, and you know, I remember to this day, I'd met her earlier in the year, uh, just literally the same weekend I broke up with another girlfriend. She had been visiting my friend, and I'd met her, so I knew who she was. And I always remember her coming out of her parents' house in the twilight after we'd driven like 24 hours to get to Kenosha, Wisconsin, oh. which is where the con was. And her coming out of the house and me going, wow, this woman is much more beautiful than I ever remembered her being from six months ago. Um, and we've been together ever since. Uh, so. He had a lot of girlfriends. Oh. He had more girlfriends than we did in high school and college. <laughs> Clearly. I, uh, <laughs> The secret to having girl, a lot of girlfriends is you have to listen to them. You have to oh. Like being with women, and I love being with women. They're great. Yeah. So I, that I, helps. I, he he didn't have restraining orders, and I also think uh, <laughs> no, other, I didn't have restraining the, orders. The, and I was also in the alternative school, which I was kind of backtracking right. to in my senior year, which was a much more mixed socially mixed group than even standard high school was and you know people mix a lot in, in high school but the alternative school was you know freaks and geeks central yeah and, so and, we were all you know it was all it was people in the alternative school were either burners or kind of broke geniuses who didn't get along under the rules <laughs> i i like to think i was the second class so uh anyway can you, can you, my, my secret to meeting girls is actually be with girls. That's right. That and, and being an artist probably helps, too. You have something creative. That doesn't. Huh? Come see my etchings. Oh, come see my etchings. Yeah. That one. Exactly. 
it, it's funny. The first person I ever heard say that was the girlfriend I had just before my wife. And she's like, oh, come up and see your etchings, huh? And I'm like, what? <laughs> well, I have done some etchings, but I'd never heard this. Wow. You missed an opportunity. It went right over your head. Make, I'd like to see your etchings. Make me look like your French girls. That's what, uh, that's what make... yeah, there was, uh, that was way, way before that. That's right. So <laughs> can I ask you about, I want to ask you about when you showed up at Gen Con um, to, to redeem, to get your, your books. Who did you like? How did that happen? Who did you talk to? I, you know, was I'm I'm hoping you say Gary was sitting there, but I'm thinking that's not going to happen. No, I don't think I, Gary may have been in the area, but that's a that memory is a little bit fuzzy. They had the the dealers area was in the library at Parkside that year, and there was uh, and it was a multi level area, and TSR had a big you say booth. <laughs> These weren't booths, really. They were tables, yeah. right? DSR had a big bank of tables there. And I went up and I was like, hey, I'm the guy that, that came in second at the, in the magazine and I never got my stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, sorry about that. And if I had to guess, Tim Cask might have been there. Um, Kim Mohan was almost certainly there. Uh, and it was it was other people that I... I don't remember specifically because it was just before I went to work there. So I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any great uh, recognition of who I was talking to and they didn't know me either. So they would, you know, even if the chances of whoever was behind the, the table helping me there, remembering that is very close to zero, but that same, you know, and I hope I'm not complaining these two and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not. That I believe it was that same. It was 1980 when I went there. I went there to interview for a job, so I had a job interview set up. TSR in 1980 had been advertising the magazine for staff positions, and I my memory is that I I uh, applied in the spring of or late winter or early spring of 1980, and. Uh, other notable people that I, I believe applied then were Fra Frank Menster was one of the people that applied at that same time. And he actually was hired in the spring. They did a second round of hiring in the summer. And because I had, at that point, I had done well in those two contests. I taught how to play D&D at MIT's high school studies program. So, see, I did get them. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as far as anyone knows, I was the first person to teach. I and my teaching party, uh, partner, Marty Serkin, who was also the best man at my wedding, were the first people to teach D&D at any college or university anywhere. Wow. So I'd done those things. And between that, they, they must have thought, oh, this guy, he might be okay. Um, but, but thank God my dad's secretary retyped my resume. <laughs> <laughs> rather than my two finger typing. So I'm sure that that didn't hurt either. And I had this interview set up, uh, date, place, time, and that same convention and ended up uh, meeting Lauren Schick for my interview. And we spent the entire interview looking for Harold Johnson, who was supposed to be my boss <laughs> and was not there for Harold will tell you that he had a game scheduled and that's why I couldn't find him. But I met uh, I met Lawrence and Lawrence and I had uh, had a nice talk and I showed him you know some 
some samples of my artwork and we talked about the module and that kind of stuff and spent I literally spent the entire interview walking through Parkside looking for Harold, which is, that's a, it was fun. It was, it was weird and it was fun. So. And I, uh, I think since it was an art position, you didn't have to take that test. We've heard about a test. I no, I did take that test. You did? Yeah, because I, I didn't apply for an art position. I applied for an editor designer position. Oh. So what was on the ticket? You tell, was it, I've heard it was like, Pole arms? Yes, no. It's like proprietary. Oh, you can't say. Oh, he's under a, a, a non-disclosure. No, 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 no. The um, the the test the the test at the time was a you were to edit and correct a monster that Lawrence and and the other devious minds at TSR had cooked up and filled with numerous spelling, grammatical, and gaming errors. And so it was out of the monster manual. Game. It was basically they just gave. No, it was it was something you'd never heard of before. It was like, <laughs> oh, what was it? The schlump or something like that. It wasn't the schlump. It wasn't the schlump. Ah. But it was. It had a goofy name like schlump, um, and you had to. The test was editing that somewhere. Yeah. Later, they got much more complicated with their tests. Whether that yielded better results, I don't know. <laughs> You, you know, they got a lot of brilliant people into into TSR right around it that, you know, and not saying I'm one of them, but there were a lot of great minds that came to TSR right around that same time. Did you take the test right then and there? So you show up and they like whip out a piece of paper and Lauren Schick is like That's here. That's a good question. I, I don't remember. I think they I think they probably sent it to me when they told me they were interested in interviewing me. We're interviewing you. Here, take the test. And no one got 100% on this test, is my understanding. No one found all the crap that they put into this monster description. Uh, but I must have done well enough. So did they? So they uh, called me and set up an interview. And I went there and I interviewed. And um, went there, I interviewed. I fell in love with my future wife. Uh, we all drove back to Massachusetts in my mom's van. And uh, I... For 24 hours, it's a 24 hours. At least then it was a 24 hours drive. It was you probably speed limits are higher now, so you probably make it in in 18 or something like that. But it was 24 hours. Uh, we didn't stop for the night because you know even campgrounds are expensive when you spend all your money. In right. On. <laughs> I got home. We dropped everyone off since it was my mom's van. I lay down and uh, literally I had had my head on the pillow for maybe an hour and the phone rang and it was Lawrence. And I said, Oh, hi Lawrence. I, I just got back home from, from Gen Con. He was like, well, how soon can you get back here? I was like, how soon do you want me? <laughs> did, did you ask how much you were going to make? Here I was there. Did you know how much money you were going to be paid? Uh, yeah. And it was not much. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to pry. I just—that's sort of a standard was, question. It's always the my same answer. My memory is that it was maybe twenty-five or thirty-five cents more than minimum wage at the time. How did your parents feel about this? Um, they were surprised. <laughs> they knew I had been interviewing, and you have to remember this is literally—it's after Gen Con, days before the start of my senior year in college. Oh, so did you drop out of college? I did. I dropped yeah, out of college that's, to just oh, TSR, which will come back into my story later. 
Yeah, so I dropped out of college. I, I literally was like, hey, mom and dad. Uh, my parents were separated. So, hey, mom, hey, dad. Uh, hey, there's this girl that came back with me from Wisconsin, and I've got a job, and I'm leaving as soon as we can get, get the stuff together to send me back wow. to Wisconsin. And that was about 10 days later. Wait, so, so she, I probably need to pay better attention. So, wait, so, so the girl you saw walking out, that you fell in love with basically immediately. Future wife. Future wife. Future wife. She came back with you in the back to, she's from Wisconsin. Yes. Huh? Because her plan had been, remember she'd known my other friend from college. Her plan had been to, she was going to stay with him. And she'd been in the Boston area and stayed with his family before. She uh. was going to stay with them and then go back to, uh, back to college in Ohio. She went to Oberlin. And through freakish circumstances, the friend that she was going to stay with did not drive back with us. He, for whatever reason, he took a plane back or something. We got there. He wasn't there. His mother wasn't there. No one was there. So she ended up staying at, at my mom's house, my house. And literally, we've been together ever since, aside from school and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was like this weird combination of whirlwind romance and getting my dream. Wow, job. that's a good all week. That is it a was week. a really, really good week. Since then, it's all been downhill. Yeah. <laughs> that was the best it was going to get. Yeah, in some ways, I suppose that's Well, true. that's why you go for adventure, right? That's you. you that's true. For every terrible party killed out, you get this. See, that's get... how he gets the girls, because right. he's going to Gen Con. Right. We're not. He's he's taking a chances. If you sit in your right. room all day, you get nothing. James. Yeah. So, right, exactly. Did she go back to Oberlin? She did. Okay, so she finished up. So you're a TSR. She's yeah, she Oberlin. finished up. She actually has two master's degrees. So Okay. So <laughs> And and I almost got fired from TSR for not having a degree at all. What? That's, that's How... a slightly later story. Okay, well we need to bookmark that, James, because we definitely need to ask about that. So uh what where is TSR headquarters? Because I don't know if you heard our trivia. One of the trivia questions written by John Peterson from this D&D Trivia Pursuit was, what street was TSR headquarters on at some point? Where, where was the headquarters when you landed there? All right, TSR's headquarters was on Sheridan Springs Road, but it wasn't in the big Sheridan Springs Road building that everyone thinks it is now. It was in a small building that was a couple of, well, it would be about a, maybe a city block down from where the big headquarters is. And it was a, a small building that had, I think it was green siding or maybe it was dark brown. And it looked like, you remember when all the McDonald's were shingled? Yeah. Hmm. It looked like that. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> Except it was a long building that had, had a warehouse. That was the headquarters. But TSR also had the gray house um, that used to be maybe the full headquarters. It was next to the gray house next to the Pizza Hut. Um, on, oh God, what's the name of the street? Is it Main Street? And they had the gray house where Dragon Magazine was, which was packed to the rafters with copies of the magazine and paper and stuff. And then the creative division was downtown on the second and third floors above the Dungeon Hobby Shop in the old Hotel Claire, which was... <laughs> the Hotel Claire was a trip. It was... A hotel maybe in the 20s or 30s and had been falling apart ever since. And so the walls leaned and the floors were uneven 
And when I got there, there was a a hole in the ceiling of Tom Mulvey's office oh, that, yeah. Errol Ot- that Errol Otis had fallen through. The infamous Errol Otis attic. hole. That's right. We've heard various stories. Some where he's half his body, is his legs are dangling. Others where, no, his head's just, he looks popping through and looking down. No, no, I, his his legs went through. <laughs> it was... Wait, how do you know? I don't know. Do you know I, I don't know if he was, I don't know if he was dangling, but his legs went through and made that hole. So... Well, how far he got through, I'm not sure, because it was just before I got there. But his his legs definitely made the hole. It was, you know, it was one of those attics where you're you're either stepping on the stepping on the boards that support the the rafters, or you're not. And I guess he missed one, or maybe they thought it was a solid floor. Well, I'm it, not sure. what what's he doing up there? Wasn't weren't people told not oh, to they, go up there? They were just exploring. Right, he was told not. They weren't doing anything. They were just checking it out <laughs> because it was a it's a weird old, old hotel, and it had a it had an exit up there that went out to the roof. Um, that I I think I was up on there out there once maybe during the time I was there. It, it was a real rat trap. But the dungeon hobby shop was on the bottom floor, and that was cool. And the dungeon hobby shop had a basement that. Not only was under this big hotel building, but also under the Woolworths-like store that was next door. So it was like a huge, I think it had been a bowling alley maybe at one point or something for the hotel. It had a huge basement that was basically double the size of the floor space of any of the floors on the hotel. It was a really interesting, cool building. And they've refurbished it and it looks, you know, it looks really beautiful now. And you can go up and see all the places where we were. But it lacks the tilting stairways and the cracked plaster and the Errol Otis hole in the ceiling and all that kind of uh, really cool, interesting nostalgia stuff. So, so the building's so, still there. It's a Kilwins fudge shop, I think it's Kilwins, where uh, the hobby shop used to be. And so, where, did you share? What space did you share? With whom did you share a space? I was uh, the art department was on the second floor as were a couple of other uh couple of other folks eventually the rpga was on the second floor i was in the 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 writer the designer design devo production on the third floor and i was i my office mate was john pickens who was hired the same the same time the same day that i was uh, I came in, when I came in, I was employee number 95. When I left a little less than four years later, I was employee number, I think, 35 or 36. When John left, eventually, when they finally worked up the courage or the chutzpah or whatever to actually cut him free, he had worked his way up to all the way to number one in seniority. So I was hired the same, literally the same day that mm. he was. And he and I were roommates, which worked out great because this kid from Sharon, Massachusetts, was not prepared (laughs) to to move to Lake Geneva just off the cuff. But John Pickens hired the same day, lived in Mishawaka and had was able to drive up and secure a place and stuff. And Lawrence was like, well, there's this other guy we were hiring, too, and maybe you guys could could roommate. And uh, God love John. He had done all the scouting work. He, He was prepped. He was ready to go. So, so John, we shared an office up on the third floor. We were the prod boys working under Harold Johnson on production. What they called production then is what you would now call editorial. 
the workflow was design, Devo, production. And design was design. And Devo would was uh, development. They would play test the games. And then after they were done, it would come to production. And production was, our job was to take the games and, and get them ready for print. Oh, I'd, I'd worked on my, my college newspaper too. So I, I, and my, I'm third generation publishing. So my, my grandfather owned a, a, some little newspapers. My dad worked there. So I remember the days of hot lead being poured into linotype machines. Wow. And I mean that literally hot lead. There was a furnace here that you melted the lead from yesterday's edition in and poured it into the top of a machine that would turn it into little blocks of type, a line O type. So, mm. So I had that experience, which probably didn't hurt either. And our job was to take everything from the raw manuscripts and turn them into final product, which meant editing and getting the typesetting done and uh, ordering the art and all that kind of stuff. Wow. And so what can you tell us about? So can you tell us a little bit about Gene Wells? You, You knew Gene Wells. Oh, yeah. Jean Wills was a good friend of mine. Yeah. So we're big fans. Um, I think that her the answers that she wrote in Sage Advice were just great. Uh, she seemed- oh, she was brilliant. She was brilliant in Sage Advice. I, I love that column. I was, um, that was uh, something I really enjoyed before I moved out. So to come out there and, and meet Jean and, and the rest of the crew was was really cool. Yeah, I she was great at Sage Advice. But she was she was in a kind of a weird position. She was and I'm I'm not going to probably get this all right because it wasn't my life, but she was kind of hired to come out and learn stuff under Gary and kind of be his assistant. So she ended up caught between the creative division and the management division which were two different buildings. So she was kind of neither fish nor fowl, and there was there was always uh, a bit of suspicion about any anyone coming down from management into the creative building was always regarded with a bit of skepticism um, because they were likely to do crazy things. That's <laughs> <laughs> just the way it was, and it just got worse. So, so she was ha- so she was housed in management. Yeah, I believe her office was in management. She, I don't think she had an office on in the creative division at that time. Do you? What, and so, uh, you know, if we're going to talk about Gene Wells, we feel like uh, it's uh, we're obligated to ask about the module. Right, and that's one of the questions. <laughs> it's on the chat. <laughs> so, if you well, have any module, yeah. So, you, do but, I have anything to say about the module? I was the overseeing editor. Oh, uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, can you brew some coffee, James? Right. You got. Folks, grab some coffee. All right. Tell all. We're ready. All right. Uh, there's a cut. The, the long setup of it is there was. There were problems between management and the creative division because there was Gary was at this time involved in kind of a power struggle with the blooms who were, you know, we're going to go mass market. We're going to do all this other stuff. We're going to make the game safe for everyone to play kind of stuff. And Gary, who wanted, you know, who was a gamer and wanted to, you know, continue the game as kind of a college-level adult game. So there was there was friction there, but there was also friction uh, generally between Gary and the gaming and the rest of us who were in the downtown building actually turning the ideas into product. 
um, because Gary didn't want anybody editing anything he did, basically. And the thing that sticks out in my mind, the thing that I remember that was one of the inciting incidents about this was, I think it was Keep on the Borderlands, which was produced just before I got there. There had been uh, a character that was called the Warder of something. And I don't remember what character it was. It was someone, the Warder of something or other. And I think it was in that module. And that had gotten down to the design development. And the Devo guys, I think it probably was, it said, well, Warder, that's not a word. He must mean, this must be a typo. He must mean Warden. Right. And they changed this one word from Warder to Warden. And Gary had kind of flipped out about it <laughs> to say the least because they were changing his design and changing his words and what they i don't believe they knew was that it was warder because gary liked that kind of stuff and because it was a, it was a tip of the hat tribute from gary to jim ward who mm. you know who's you know a good friend of mine to this day and i don't think any of us knew that the end result was he wasn't happy with the some editing or some uh, corrections that had been put into his module. And this was probably the middle of 1981. And so he wasn't happy about that. Uh, B3, Palace of the Silver Princess, was coming through. There was may have been another module by Len Lakofka, who was another friend of Gary's that was having trouble with the system because the stuff he wasn't turning in was up to, was not up to the standards with which we were accustomed to working. Um, and that's no offense to Len. And it's, it's, you know, and he's not someone I really know. Um, but it was, it, it was part of the problem was the fact that there were, there were basically three separate companies, right? And three different buildings. It was the magazine company and the, the and then there was the management and then there was us who were actually turning out all the product. Um, in that kerfuffle and political struggle, there was a there was an edict that came down from on high because of this incident that Gary had had that said, thou shalt not change the designer's words or intent at all. So what you guys are doing is you're taking the modules from us, us being whoever was up in Gary's corner, you're going to proofread them and you're going to put them out. And that's what you're going to do. And so Palace of the Silver Princess came in here and it was under that edict. We had a workflow that, you know, if you were Lawrence or or Zeb or Tom, you would go through the design process and design Devo and stuff. And the, the kind of way we did with the basic experts at uh, what they now call Moldvay Cook, which was, you know, it started with the designers and went through Devo. And then production would say, okay, we need to, to make this publishable and we need to make it to the standards that we want. And the standard on basic and expert was they had to be kind of playable out of the box. They had to be, so we did in production, we did a lot of rewriting and we had designers do a lot of rewriting so that you got a very consistent product front to back, which is one of the reasons I, I still really 
I love the work that we did on basic and export. Oh, that's so we have by this far. workflow. What? By far, the Moldve, looking back, it's it, people adore it to this day. I mean, beyond the yeah, nostalgia. The is, I would I would put forth the reason is that we were all working together on it, and you were getting you were getting the best of all of them. Everyone in that building had a hand in those books, and you know. When we came from production and said we need to rearrange this so that basic and expert have the same or the same order of stuff, we need to have a, a consistency to the how the descriptions are written of the monsters. Here's some examples that we did, and I was one of the people that rewrote a number of the monsters. That then Tom and Zeb would come back and say, "Okay, here's how we're doing the monsters," and then they would do that. Then we would tweak it, and it was a big process. And now we were being told that we were not to follow this highly successful creative process with anything that came from the Gary and the company, which was Gary and Gene and I think Len Lakafa and probably some other people that I don't remember. But those three people for sure were kind of in that don't touch this zone. Um, and Gene was... As I've said, she was kind of between the two. So she was she was Gary's friend and Gary's kind of assistant and doing the doing the sage advice and stuff, which she did really well. But she was friends with a lot of people in the creative division, but not really close friends. She lived in um there was a, there's an apartment on uh, two fifty five Elmwood Avenue that's a uh, a, an apartment complex where a lot of us lived and she was in the front part and a whole bunch of us were, they called it TSR West <laughs> because there were a lot of us there. I was, I was there with John Pickens. Steve Winter was there on floor above me. Um, Heidi Gygax and, and her future husband were in the, the apartment next to me. Um, Gene Wells was in the front, front part. Um, and a number of, there were just a whole lot of us in that building. Um, and that's, that's kind of tangentially related, which is because that was one of the reasons I kind of became friends with Jean because she was right there and she was motherly. She, you know, I was a young kid. I came in and she was probably three, four years older than me. So she was like, oh, you youngster, I'll take you under my wing. She was very friendly. Anyway, her stuff came down and we weren't to touch it. And it, and uh, as much as I love Gene, it wasn't up to it wasn't up to the standards that it would have would have upheld for anyone that was actually in the design department uh, with us. So, excuse me, let me get a drink here. So it came through, and we had this edict that we were not to touch it, and it was assigned to Ed Sollers. I was a pretty quick edit, and I was pretty good at organizing. So I had been assigned by Harold. I would kind of oversee um, Ed and John sometimes and and just kind of like do my own work and then look at their work and help them organize and that kind of stuff. And I was the editor above. I was kind of above Ed, even though technically we had the same job description. And then Harold was our manager as the head of the production. And this thing came in and Harold was off doing manager things. And... Ed comes into my office. Ed was a, a, a short guy from Texas with a big hat and a big voice and a big heart. Ed comes in and he says, Steve, this is bad. I mean, this is really, really bad. <laughs> I mean, 
it's filled with sadism and masochism and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's bad. <laughs> and that's pretty much what Ed sounded like. And that's pretty much exactly what he said. It's not, you know, it's 40 years later, 43 years right. later. So it's not entirely word for word, maybe, but that's really close. And I looked at him and I said, Ed, we're not to touch this. That's the edict that, that's come down is we're not to touch this. And so you're going to go through and you're going to edit out the typos and you're going to, you know, make whatever minor changes you need to make it work. And we're just going to send it through the system as it is. And, he, you know, he and I went back and forth about this a little and we talked to Harold probably. And, and they were like, yeah, we're, we're going to not do anything to this. And of course, you have to remember that, you know, again, yeah, not trying to puff myself up. Everybody in that building is a rogue genius to some extent. We're all the cream of the crop of D&D players and creators from all across the country at the time. So everyone is super smart. Everyone is their own person, highly motivated. And none of us like taking orders, especially not if they're stupid. Right. So part of me is like, if this is what they want, this is what they get. This is what they're right. going to get. Let's, we're going to do what they say, and maybe they'll realize then that this is a terrible mistake. <laughs> you should let us actually do our jobs. So I was thinking that. I never said that to anyone at the time. Maybe I said it, maybe I said it to Ed. He's <laughs> like, Ed, this is what they're telling us to do. We should do it. But it's not going to be what we want. I was like, well, but it's what they want. Yeah, yeah. So let's do it. So we send it through the, we send it through the system. And it was, it was enough of a kerfuffle that most of the regular artists didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, Errol was okay with it. Uh, Bill Willingham, I think, might have contributed one or two. But Jeff D. and some of the others were like, no, we're not going to. No. Just, just no. No, we don't like the fact that Gene is pushing this through. We don't like the fact that Gary is telling us we have to do it. We don't like any of this, and we're not going to do it. Um, and that's how, in the artwork, you ended up with art by me and art by Gene and art by Laura Rosloff, who was on the fringe of the art department. The art department at the time, I think, was uh, Jeff and Bill and Errol and Jim Rosloff and maybe Diesel now and again. So you didn't get the usual mix of art on the thing, but we got together. Errol painted a very nice cover. We all got together. We put it together. We sent it out, and it just went through the normal process. You know, it went down to Patch Press, and it was typeset, and came back, and blue lines. And we, you know, we marked up the errors and all the, the stuff they got wrong when they typeset it, and we sent back, and it just went through the regular process. And then it came back in the, in the, with its lovely kind of orange-gold color, uh, and we're like, hey, look, it's here. It's, it turned out really well. <laughs> and it does, looks okay. It looks like a TSR product. It's not exactly what we do now. But there was also a, a difference in the way that Gene and some of the earlier players played and the, the kind of products we were doing now. Because we'd gone from stuff like uh, B1, B1, I think, B2, uh, that had spaces where people, the dungeon master, fill in your own stuff here which 
is something that was in Pit or the Oracle too, which was like, here's here's the stuff that I think is really cool. Here's put some stuff of your own here to make it your own. And B three had that that kind of feeling to it. So it was very different from say the A series, which we also were doing at the time, which was one of the first things that I edited was A three, that had you know it very complete stories, very complete dungeons that had you know a storyline to them to some extent that kind of stuff um it came back it was like okay we're done great on to the on to the next thing which we were you know production takes a long while so we were already into new things and uh some of the suits up in <laughs> Sheridan Springs Road saw it and flipped out completely lost their minds they were I, I think all of them did i think this was the blooms and gary for various reasons though i don't remember specifically and they came down to the the downtown office somebody came down it might have been will niebling who was kind of um you know and understand that when i talk about people like will that these people are friends of mine but they weren't always friendly when working with them yeah yeah <laughs> somebody somebody like will if it wasn't him came down looking to fire people because this we'd released this module that had a woman being poked by a naked woman hung up by her hair being poked by, with swords which was an illusion but you know the illustration was there and laura rosloff had done it very tastefully and all the other stuff that's in b3 that at the time they thought was really outrageous. People look at this now and they're like, oh, what's the big deal? But at the time that it was kind of, D&D was an adult game, but this was kind of on a, the fringy ed of being, edge of being an adult game. They came down looking to fire people. Um, and that obviously meant me and Ed <laughs> and, and probably Harold and anyone else they could lay their hands on. Uh, but not Jean, because Jean was in a protected you know, she was in the protected role, being uh, friends of Gary and, and that kind of stuff. And we literally had a paper that said, thou shalt not. And it, it didn't say thou shalt not, right. literally. But it had, the words were, you are not to do this. And here is our memo signed by Gary telling you, you shall not change anything. And we all were like, hey, here, see this paper? <laughs> Paper says, don't change anything. We didn't. Uh, and they were like, well, crap. They kind of got us here. And so they rounded up um, pretty much all the books they could find and destroyed them and sent it back for a second uh, a rewrite that uh, Tom Waldvey did very capably. Uh, and that's how we went from having the orange edition to the green edition. Now, there's one caveat here. Oh, one side story is back in the old days when a product came out, everybody got a copy. Yeah. The company was small enough that they could do this. And so you, while I worked there, I got a copy of every product TSR put out. Uh, and that was especially true in the early days. So every office had a copy of B3 and every person had, had a copy in theory of B3. Uh, but maybe it was just an office copy. But I remember I was an editor. And I, I guess I've got a little Irish gab in me. Because when they were destroying all the, the copies, I was like, 
I'm an editor, but this has my art in it. It may be the only time my art has ever published in TSR's products. And I won't you please let me keep my copy? And they're like, all right, kid, you keep your copy. But all the rest of them have to be destroyed. So I actually have in my basement still to this day, as far as I know, the only official non-destroyed copy of B3 Palace of the Silver Princess there you go. resides with me. Because I talked them into it in one of my... <laughs> I came off really well in this story. It was like, hey, I get to keep the rare module. And you guys get taught a lesson you should have learned without having us, us having to teach it to you. So that's my side of it. And I think if you talk to most of the Design Devo people, they'll tell you something fairly similar. But Ed and I were at the center of that cyclone. And, wow. And uh, he wanted to, you know, I know people say, Ed didn't know about sadism and masochism. BS. Can we swear on this podcast? <laughs> sure, if you'd like. BS. Ed knew, Ed knew exactly what it was. I knew exactly what it was. He came, came to me and used the exact words that I used, pretty much. So we knew it was potentially a problem, but we knew I, I was going to let them stick their foot in it. Right. And, yes. they, and they did. <laughs> and as a result of that, they rescinded that, that previous note. It was like, okay, maybe from now on, yeah, I guess you can run everything through the design development process. So yeah. that's the story. Because you're in your 20s. I mean, people have to remember, too, you're in your early 20s there. I'm 21. Yeah. I, I started working at TSR um, five days after I turned 21. Right. And these are all young kids. I mean, today they would be interns. They wouldn't let people do anything. And, and here you're, <laughs> you're in charge of the product. And, you know, before, just before that you were in college and you, I mean, things were, it was just such a different time. And, uh, right. And the older people in the creative division were maybe five, six, six right. years older than me, maybe 10 tops, but yeah. I don't think so. We'd have to we'd have to get Lawrence and ask Lawrence. Lawrence and Alan Hammock may have been the older people in the department, but we're all we were all youngsters, and no, and we were working on the cutting edge of this thing, and no one was generally we knew what we were doing, and no one was there was no one to say no to us. Right. If we all decided to do something, that's the way we were going to do it. Although sometimes they said no. When we were doing basic and expert. I was one of the people who said, can we fix the armor class system? Can we start it at zero and go up to 20 or wherever you want to go with it? And they're like, well, that makes sense. But no, you can't do that because this has to look like it's a rewrite of the original three box sets because, and we're not saying this, but because we want to put Dave Arneson's royalties onto basic and expert and undercut his, his uh, lawsuit to try to get royalties for AD&D. So... So right. sometimes they said no, but not often. And, and you had mentioned that you had met Dave. I think you said earlier that you'd met Dave. How often did you interact with Dave, and how often did you interact with Gary? At the time, never. I, I met Dave Arneson maybe twice. I've got uh, a signed copy of Adventures in Fantasy, I think it is, his, his post-D&D thing. And that was about it. I'd seen him maybe a couple of times. He wasn't, you know, he was long gone from the company at that point. And Gary was someone we basically never saw. Okay, you know, at the the Founders Day, you'd see him uh, occasionally other places, but he was not. I 
don't know if I ever remember Gary coming down to the the Hotel Claire to talk to us or do anything with us at the time. Um, so he would be he would be dealing with people like Lawrence or um, or Alan and and probably Harold. The manager the managers might deal with him, but generally he didn't set foot in the in the spaces we were. I don't remember him being there. I, I could be wrong. I think I would remember it. And he and I actually didn't become friends uh, until I left TSR to start Pace Center, which was a very weird and interesting. That was a great uh, a great company. It was really, we had a lot of really interesting people there, did some interesting products. But in the sense, I remember the, the moment Gary became my friend was we started Pace Center. We were controversially at Gen Con with our first products for Pace Center, which would have been chill in 1984. And uh, people were really interested in it because we'd taken, you know, we had some top designers and people from, from PSR like Mark Akers and Troy Denning and Andrea Hayday uh, and Michael Williams. And we were all in the Rathskeller at UW Parkside, which was still where Gen Con was, having pizza in between shifts on manning the uh, our booth and running demo games. And we were sitting there as a group, uh, me and Mark, Troy, um, probably some of the others. And Gary came in to the, uh, the Rathskeller pizza area and saw us amid all these other people and went, came straight from the door to our table and shook our hands and wished us well. And, and we were, you know, Gary was my friend from that moment onward. And I, I realized later that he was, had been so enmeshed in the politics at the upper levels of TSR and we were doing what he wanted to be doing, but he couldn't because he was caught up in his own company in these uh, just eternal political struggles between him and the Blooms and, and all the money and all that kind of stuff. And it was just driving him out of his mind. And then that's how Gary and I became friends. And then I worked with him and Frank at New Infinities. And uh, I had Gary's dungeon sat in my house for two or three years while he and I were working on a product that has maybe been released after someone else meddled with it since, but he and I were working on his Greyhawk dungeons, uh, which we were calling Dun Falcon. And, um, anyway, so that's how I became friends with Gary, but at TSR, you didn't want to see Gary <laughs> in the early eighties because chances were you were going to get the kind of thing that we got that, that precipitated B3. It was, a uh, it was a tricky situation. Yeah. But as I said, we were all highly motivated, highly driven people that really knew what we were doing. And I, you look at the stuff that we put out, you know, from from the uh, first and second editions of Top Secret. I, where I was edited around the second edition, the first Top Secret modules, the first Boot Hill modules, Basic and Expert, uh, the first Gamma World modules, um, most of which I wrote the back cover copy for because that was a skill I'd picked up in high school. Uh, all of that stuff, you look at that stuff, clearly we were kind of on a roll and we had a really good teams. And the, the trick was the, the conflict between 
the management, which was all being driven by this power struggle, and those of us that were actually producing the work, was it was tricky and it was difficult. And in the end, it was that kind of stuff that got me to move from editorial to the art department and then eventually leave the company. I was an editor for, I think, probably about a year, a little less than a year, maybe. And the reason I left, and this is coming back to something we said earlier. Yep. The reason I left the editorial department was the management got this bright idea. And the bright idea was they'd hired Steve Winter, who was a, a veteran gamer, had gone to school, had a journalism degree, worked for um, one of the daily newspapers in Iowa. I don't remember which one it was. And then had come to TSR. And Steve's a brilliant guy, and he's still working uh, for TSR Watsi, uh, freelance, I think today, well, technically I do too, but so he was with the company for a long time now, but he's a brilliant guy. And they were like, Oh my God, look at this guy. He had a degree and he's this good. What are we doing with these other jokers? We should not only hire people that have degrees. Hmm. And an edict came down at that point that they were going to, in order to work and design to editorial development editorial, you had to have a degree in a related field. Well, screw me who yeah. left. Right. You college. left your, to get a job. Right. Exactly. <laughs> come work for you idiots. Yeah. Now you're saying I'm not qualified to do this job. I've been doing admirably for all this time. And being, you know, still somewhat clever. I was like, well, do you need a, do you need a related degree to work in the art department? And they were like, no, you don't need a, a related degree to work in the art department. They were like, okay, I'm transferring to the art department. And I did. And the ironic thing is that under their edict, I think Ed Sollers and John Pickens probably and others were, were going to lose their jobs. That was the thing. You had the degree or you were going to, you were going to lose your job. And I was like, well, I'm not going to lose it. I, I don't want to leave here. I'm not going right. to crawl back to Massachusetts. I'll go to the art department. I have that out. Uh, and, and fortuitously or not, that was around the time that Bill and Jeff uh, quit TSR for a variety of reasons. So the art department was, they were, they were man, men down, uh, so I moved to the art department, which then consisted of uh, me, Rosloff, uh, Errol, and maybe occasionally Diesel. Who Diesel, uh, Dave LaForce, Diesel. Diesel worked in, um, he was one of, a local, one of those local kids that had worked through the company. He was in ship. Sometimes he was in the art department. Sometimes he was in shipping. At that moment, I think he was in shipping. Um, so, so I moved to the art department, and despite all their bluster, they then actually never fired anybody who didn't have a related degree. And in fact, they hired in people with related degrees, that one of whom came from Omni, the other who'd been a book editor in New York or something like that, who ended up being terrible employees and didn't work out at all. So, right. you know, they kind of outsmarted themselves again, and, you know. TSR went on and then they, they rescinded that and they ended up hiring people like Jeff Grubb and, and Tracy Hickman and Troy Denning and, you know, and other people are just fabulous, you know, design designers, editors, et cetera. So, but there was always that 
tug the entire yeah. time I was there, the entire four years approximately that I was there, the tug between management doing something wacky and the rest of us trying to do our jobs, that was always there. And it continued after I left with, you know, uh, when with Lorraine and all that other stuff, it was like, I, I used to joke that the TSR was cursed to have bad management. It didn't matter how nice a person you were or who you were. If you were in management at TSR, you were going to do bad things just because of the internal politics. So that's the schizophrenia of that company is that, and a lot of companies fail startup companies. They weren't built to be businesses. They were built by people who are passionate, and then you get this mix, and it's the schizophrenia you're talking about is, is really, they didn't know how to be, to transition this. I mean, they made money in spite of themselves, right. as, as, as you read in the books and all the history. It's, it was while, it was, you know, it's like you said, you, you, your, your lucky week, they had a lucky 10 years where, oh, for, fortune happened, we come up with this idea, and obviously a lot of hard work, and now you're growing leaps and bounds, and you're hiring people, when you're making money hand over fist, you don't need the most qualified or you get people who are super passionate and you get this mix of things and you're right. Yeah. Um, and the super, super passionate people ended up in, in the downtown office and the, yeah. the unqualified people, many of whom sure. were relatives of someone or sure. other and not Gary <laughs> right. ended up in the other building. I mean, there was a guy they hired who was a, a relative of one of the, one of the upper management guys who was, um, they hired him as a, a, a print buyer. And uh, one of the first things he did was he full had the screwed up the print order so that the entire first run of fantasy forest boards were folded in the only way that you could fold them so that they would not actually fit in the box. Right. And that guy got a bonus that year. Yeah. Well, cause you guys bought the wrong box. <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm in management. That's yeah. See, the, box, yeah, well, exactly. the, the board is not the problem. The box is the problem. The box is the problem. Who ordered the box? Fire him. Fire the guy with the box. Fire ordered. that guy that ordered the, the box. Board well, that was that perfect. Guy too, right? Promote the guy with the board. <laughs> Fire the guy with the box. Now, uh, I, I do want to ask, you know, Steve, this has been great. I want to make sure we get some questions in because we got a lot of people. Oh, there. yeah. Yeah, right. Because we've been, I, believe it or not, we've been going for. So I told you, we'll go on as long as you want, Steve. But we want to be respectful of your time. This has been awesome. We love the stories and we appreciate it. So, um, we got a, so you did answer B3. That was kind of obviously one question people wanted to know. Uh, yeah, I have a, a YouTube video up that includes a, a long segment about that. that okay. I if you can send me the link. Ago. Yeah, if you can send me the link, we'd put it on. Because people, you know, this is, you know, it, it's, it's, such a, it's such a rich history that, uh, you know, and, and people love it. Um, the, uh, Leroy asked, I definitely want to hear about the D&D comic ads from the 80s. Ah, yeah. That was another thing I did. <laughs> there were the, um, in the Wild West of TSR, they were always trying new things. And someone, probably Dave Timory and maybe Carrie, came up with the idea that they should advertise in Marvel Comics. And so they hired a, a studio in Chicago, Racione's store, studio, uh, who they worked with on other stuff to produce this D&D comics ad. And they, they did this. Those of us that were in the creative division had no idea this was going on. And they produced this comics ad. And the first issue, it came out in Marvel Comics. And those of us that were in, in the other building 
were like, oh my God, this is a cool idea and it's terrible. <laughs> Look at this. This is awful. And, and you're a comic uh, guy too. So, I mean, this, and I'm a comic you're guy really offended and, by this. I mean, this is right. Like, I'm yeah. a comic guy. I did comic strips. I wrote through comic strips in college and stuff. And I'm working with Jeff D and Bill Willingham, who are also, you know, they're my fellow, fellow comic geeks among the, the larger Uber geek population. And uh, my memory is Jim, Bill, Jeff, and I have slightly different memories of this. My memory of this is that Jeff gets really pissed off. <laughs> it's yeah. like, why are they doing this? Why aren't we doing this? And he goes down there and says, we should be doing this. And my memory is that Bill and I were there too, but Bill doesn't think so. Bill thinks Jeff went by himself. In any case, the three of us kind of went down to the ad department, which was um, two really wonderful women named uh, Gail and Dagmar at the time. And like, why are you putting this? This is a great idea, why, but it looks terrible. We can do this better for you. And they were like, okay, <laughs> do it better for you. And so uh, Bill, Jeff, and I went, went back to uh, our little respective corner. And uh, I, being the editorial word guy, uh, got the, you know, I was like, I'll write it. And then Jeff will draw it and Bill will ink it. And so that's what we did. And we sat down and I probably hand wrote a, some kind of a little script or maybe, I don't even remember now if we did it Marvel style or the other way. I do remember that we tweaked the script after we went. And so I, you know, I sat down and I was like, okay, well, we've got the, the fighter, the elf and the, and the wizard. And we have no women, which offended me. <laughs> and we have no clerics. So I created the character of Saren and came up with this, the basic storyline. And uh, Jeff and I kicked it back and forth probably a little bit. And I came up with the script. Jeff drew it and Jeff lettered it and Bill inked it. And Jeff did the color guides, I believe. Because Jeff had been at the Kubert School. Uh, so he actually had some training in doing comics, whereas Bill and I were completely self-taught. So we did that first episode. Uh, the first episode we did, which was the second episode of the series. And they were like, Hey, this is great. Let's do more. And we're like, okay, well, we'll do, we'll have a, we'll make the first uh, ad of four issue arc and then we'll see how it goes. I was like, great. So, so I wrote it and, uh, Bill and Jeff drew it and it went on. And then we did a second set, which was supposed to be six episodes, but ended up being four. But, what happened in as we were moving through this though, Jeff was originally been drawing, Bill was gonna ink, I was just gonna write the whole thing. But between the second and the the first episode we did, which was episode two and episode three, we started getting um strictures. We started getting suggestions uh. from the uh, from on high. It wasn't specifically the ad department, but it was it was things like well, you can't really show... We don't want people to think D&D is a violent game. So you can't have people fighting. <laughs> and we don't want with people to think we're encouraging thievery. So you can't have any thieves, and you can't have the heroes stealing the treasure of the monsters that they kill. But they don't kill because... 
you can't, we're not going to kill anybody in this <laughs> because we don't want people to think D&D is about killing things. And at that point, Jeff says, screw it. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> Jeff is, um, at, at the time, Jeff was very kind of a, a black and white. You're right. either in or you're out. Yeah. Right. So he was like, and so suddenly Bill and I are doing the comic now and Jeff's doing the lettering. Um, and then, and we just kept doing it as long as they let us do it. But the, we kept getting other strictures. So very quickly after the, you can't have fighting and you can't have, can't gain treasure from monsters that you killed because you can't kill them for the first block. The next thing I think to go was you can't call spells spells and you can't call the cleric a cleric. So Bill and I just kept working and they kept kind of changing what we were allowed to do or show. And, you know, we just tried to work around it. We tried Mm. to make it as interesting as we could without, and still be D and D even without, even without fighting the ceiling, the clerics and the spells. Yeah. And getting the the treasure. So we just kept working on it as it went. And, and it settled in after a while. It was like, okay, we can't call Sarah and a cleric, and we can't, we can't have them actually stabbing people. So let's, we'll, we'll just, we'll work around it. Uh, right. Because we're probably getting more money for that strip than we were generally working for TSR. Because as I, I may have said, I think we were getting 25 or 35. I was getting 25 or 35 cents more than minimum wage, which was something like $4.25 an hour at the right. time. Um, so the my two hundred dollar half of the rent from Elmwood Ave was I had to work uh, like a week and a half or two weeks almost to get that kind of money. Um, so we just kept doing it, and as we did other little things would creep in the the coupon because we had panels of of the story, and then there was a clip and send coupon which defaced many a comic book from the era um, apparently. Uh, that coupon kept getting larger, <laughs> which meant the story space kept getting smaller as we went. And we finished up the first uh, four episode art, of which we'd done three, and it was really well, and they were loving it. And uh, we talked to Gail and Dagmar, and they were like, oh, let's do six more. And we're like, awesome. Now we have six. We did a, a dungeon adventure. For the first four, now we'll do a wilderness adventure for the next one. That makes sense. So, and people have asked, "Are you were you playing by the D and D rules, or whatever?" No, we were <laughs> we were capturing the flavor of D and D without strictly adhering to the rules. It's a question because, we would ask. Yes, you know, even though we made the rules, this was still the Wild West days. Yeah. Of you know, Bill Bill had his own house rules. I had my own house rules. I used spell points, for God's sakes. And I had armor classes that started at zero and went up. You know, so we, we were trying to capture the flavor of, the, of D&D rather than be strictly adherent to the rules of either D&D or AD&D at the time. So we started the, the, the next four that seemed to be going really well. And we got to the fourth episode and they were like, Ad series been canceled. You're uh. done. Oh, and the uh, and the the clip out coupon that now takes one quarter of the page or whatever it was. Suddenly it it ballooned and it was done. And it was done because, as I found out later, 
they thought that it didn't make any sense to advertise a comic in a comic format inside of a comic book that someone had gone to advertising college or something in between. And they decided that despite the fact that this was wildly successful and maybe the most successful ad campaign they ever did, that if you were in a comic book, you should not be using comics because people, people would get confused. They wouldn't understand. So now we would just do full page ads that showed people the knights in armor and whatever. And then that's how it ended. And the plan was that there were going to be two more and, um, and that's it. So there was, you know, I, it was funny. It wasn't until like two years ago that I discovered that there was a huge fan base for this. It was around the time John Jackson Miller said, I was at a, a, a library event um, at my wife's library with John Jackson Miller. And the question was, what was your earliest comics experience? And I talked about this ad and John Jackson Miller was like, you were that guy? I got into D and D because of those ads. Oh, like, awesome, nice! Awesome win. <laughs> yeah, big. Yeah, so big, big so fans. I wrote them. Bill. Uh, the other thing to know is that Bill did the epic ads on his own. He thinks I might have helped with the first ones, but I don't think so. I think he wanted all that money and wanted to do his own thing. Hmm. And if you look at the epic ads, the writing is pretty different. And his epic ads by the by the end of those. Oh man, they're looking good. Uh, and I, you know, I think some of the ads that he and I did for the Marvel comics, the regular print comics were really, uh, really, really fine as well. So, so there is, um, there's a rumor that somebody might be working on finishing off that series at some point. Mm -hmm. So keep tuned and uh, we'll see what happens with that. That'd be, that'd be great. Nice. That's right. I also have a super long, um, essay about how it all came to be that, uh, I need to rewrite and get up on my, on my site. So we got another question. 12 episodes. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) 12 episodes of explanation that I just gave you 10 minutes. That's perfect. Um, we have another question. You apparently love Divine Right, the board game. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm actually a pretty big fan of Divine Right. And until the damn pandemic, we had a, a an, an annual Divine Right game that we would play at GaryCon. Okay, yeah, because we saw that ad. We were going through, I told you we live in 1983. So before that, when we were doing this, <laughs> we saw the Dragon magazines. And, and we didn't play the mm-hmm. board games, none of the board games. For us... Again, there was that, I told you, like first generation, second generation. For us, it was advanced D&D. We liked basic, but it was basic. We were 13 and 12. I want to play advanced d and I don't want to play basic d and I'm, I'm a big boy. So, uh, you know, I now I'm playing Rule Cyclopedia, which is basically Beckme, which is basically Moldvay. You know, it's, it's all that same right. lineage. And I prefer that way more because it's just, it, it's easier for my brain. I mean... We were doing, right. part of our show is doing random encounters and pummeling, and we're pulling the old tables out with everything, and it's, <laughs> it's you know, but, you know, it's it's our, it's more of a nostalgia thing. So yeah, uh, Gary we, had a rule, by the way, the, one, of, one of my favorite Gary sayings, probably my favorite Gary sayings, about when asked about whether you should do this, whether you should do that, how you should apply the rules, how, whether Gary... Gary, uh, he must have said this to me, or he said it to Lawrence, and Lawrence told me, but I don't remember exactly. But this is my favorite Gary saying is two rules. 
have fun, use dice. That's right. And and that was the way he tended to run games, which weirdly I never played D D with Gary. <laughs> yeah, I asked you that. And you're like, oh wait for my answer. I'm like, oh okay. No, I swam in his swimming pool a couple of times. I swam in his swimming pool on top of the the mansion in Lake Geneva. I swam in his swimming pool in Clinton, Wisconsin. He and I never played games. Ah. We worked together. We hung out together. We had drinks together. But the thing is that the times that we were doing that was between uh, between uh, pace setter and when my wife and I started having kids. I'm pretty sure that it was the oh. If you guys have kids, once you have kids, uh, kids and, and, you know, hanging with your friends and gaming a lot, it's not compatible. Right. Yeah. At least it, wasn't, it wasn't for us. It could have been, but it, it wasn't. So. so, and you had mentioned earlier that you weren't a, you know, kind of, you weren't a war gamer and the thing that you liked about D and D when it was exposed to you was it wasn't that war gaming aspect it was more role playing. So right. divine rights, a board game. What what it is. what intrigues you about that? That kind of that. The, um, though I wasn't a war gamer, the crowd from Sharon, Massachusetts, uh, including Chaim and Mark, were war gamer board gamers. I remember I went over to Chaim's dad's house to play D D one time, and Chaim had Highway to the Reich spread. This was a tiny house, yeah. and Highway to the Reich is like this twelve or fourteen or fifteen foot board that you put counters on and and, and uh, try to defeat the Nazis. It was this took up this entire house. So so there were board gamers and and war gamers in my in my group and in my background. Um, and Divine Right just looked really cool. It was a cool looking game. It's got you know a fantasy element. It's got really cool graphics by you know uh, the 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 Raman brothers and, and, um, and tramp. And it's just a really neat thing. And it's in theory, it's, it's a short, it's, it's a board game. It's only supposed to last a couple of hours. Of course it never does. It's, you know, if you can finish the game in four hours, then you're lucky. Yeah. And the, the, one of the funny things is that we always, until very recently, we always played with the original rules, which were very lax and, whether you could gain points for assassinating other other monarchs and stuff. In terms of war games, it's a very simple game. It's like all the counters are the same strength and you're you're pitting your counter stack against their counter stack or your counter stack against their castle and that kind of stuff. And it has elements of diplomacy in it. Um, not quite the diplomacy game diplomacy, which was another thing that was very big where I came from. Um, but it's got a it's got a little a little bit of roles because there are personality cards that you can change for the rules of the kingdoms. It's just a really interesting kind of mix of war gaming and fantasy gaming, and that's that's why I love it, and that's why my wife loves it. And, uh, nice. As I said, you know, we had an annual game going that uh, the pandemic has sadly interrupted. Are you playing? I am pandemic averse. Yeah, that's right. We mentioned that. Um... So uh, I, I guess, you know, from, from I'm kind of quickly looking over your proudest achievement during your TSR time. I'm sorry. You 
you broke up and I didn't get that question. Sure. Uh, your proudest achievement during your time at TSR. That was the question we got. Oh, this is probably going to be basic and expert. I would think. Yeah, I mean, um, because it's a great game system, and I think it it holds up well. I think you can learn to play the game with it uh, pretty straight out of the box. Uh, that one, I wrote the back cover copy for that. So if you read the back cover, and I almost got fired for the back cover copy. That's oh, really? another story because it was one of the first things I wrote. And weirdly, by the time I got there in 1980, no one had ever told anyone in the creative division that you could not write out the word and in Dungeons and Dragons. Oh. It always had to be the ampersand. Interesting. But no one had ever told any of us. <laughs> You'd think they might have, but they didn't. So I wrote the original cover copy had Dungeons and D Dragons, Dungeons and D Dragons, Dungeons and D Dragons. And the, the, the wrath of the... <laughs> The wrath of the executives came storming down to us and like, who did this? Fire oh. this person. Like Oof. none of us knew. If any of us had known, do you think we would have done this? Why did you not tell us this? Oh, that's like, oh, okay, don't do it again. There seems <laughs> to be a... on the line there. Yeah, it seems to be the management book for the for the management trainees. Uh, welcome to management. Step one. If there's a problem, look to fire someone. Step two, back away immediately when proven that you were wrong. It's like Orcus's guide to management. That's right. Fire them. Kill them. That, it totally felt that way at the time. And, and it was like, which is why you didn't want to see the executives. You didn't want to hear from them. Yeah. You just wanted to do your work. So, so why did you uh, was look, there a what? question there? I forget. So that's probably my proudest thing. Yeah. Um, I... I'm very proud of the work I did on on uh, Ghost Tower of Inverness as well, uh, which was one of my early things, and the stuff that I did on the first top secret modules and that kind of stuff. I I'm proud of what we were able to do on Fiendfolio, which I'm the uncredited American editor with alongside Alan Hammock. Uh, I'm uncredited. This this may be one of our last stories before we have to go. I'm uncredited on that because I had, as an editor, yeah, Fiendfolio Tome of Creatures Malevolent and Benign. And benign, yep. I am the uncredited editor on that because, well, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is that they wouldn't let us change much of anything. It came whole cloth over from England, and we had some problems with it. But the the bigger reason is as an editor, I'd accidentally left Bill Willingham out of the credits on one module. Mm. And I said, and he was right, rightfully upset. And I said to him, Bill, if I ever do that again, I will leave my name off of the next thing I work on. And unbeknownst to me, <laughs> I had actually already left his name off the next thing I had that uh. was through the, the pipeline. And so it was like, oh, okay, well, I'm leaving my name off the feed folio. Uh, but I'm, oh. I'm one of the editors on that. But that, uh, the, other, the other part of the story is that came over from England directly, and a lot of the stuff had been in um, White Dwarf. Yep. Don Turnbull, uh, who was the head of TSR UK at the time, literally they brought over the complete uh, photo-ready 
manuscript. So it was wasn't even a manuscript. It was everything you see in that book. And so when Alan and I were going through the book, it was like, okay. First of all, they use a type font we didn't have in America. Yeah. <laughs> and second, there was stuff that they were doing that was just not what we would have done or preferred. But because we couldn't match the type font, we had to keep our corrections very, very minimal. And the two that stick out in my mind are we did a correction to the draw entry because the way they had it set up, every draw had like tons of magic items. And so if you were a player character, all you had to do to get a whole bunch of plus weapons and armor and this kind of crap, all you had to do was waylay some low-level draw party. Right. And then suddenly you were, you were kitted out fit to beat the band. And so Alan and I came up with a, a, a solution to that. And if you look at the draw entry, there will, there's a place where you will see that the type style changes just a little bit. Oh, it's so, it's entry so long. It is. And there's a place where it'll change from what you see around it in the other entries. We came close to matching it, but it doesn't quite match. Yeah, mm. I'm sure you could see it, but, you know, for us... Yeah, you probably can't, but I can, I can tell you exactly where it is. Yeah, it's kind of like when you do work in your house and no one else sees it, but you see it every time. That's that's kind of this. You Absolutely. Got... And the other one that we changed, um, that I remember we changed, was the carbuncle, which was a small animal oh, carbuncle-like creature. Yeah, the carbuncle. Ali Fiore. That had a gem in the middle of its forehead. And in the original text of the carbuncle, if you remove the carbuncle's gem, it would cry. Oh. Oh. And go away. And we were like, there's no crying in d and oh. oh. So if you look at that one, you'll see there's a section that's been just, just a little bit different. Interesting. And that's how you know that I worked on that because I'm one of the two people in the world that until I told everyone now. Yeah, how tempting was it? I mean, because once you put the effort into changing the type, right? It's it's one thing to either take it as, like you said, as whole cloth and just going, it is what it is. But now you actually went, you're like, okay, this can't stand. These two things we got to fix because it's not good for the game. It's not good for the product. But once you've done that, how hard is it to then say, okay, we're not going to do any other? Because I'm sure there's plenty of other ones. Was it just could it take too long, or what was the thought process? Yeah, it was. It was a. It was a matter of time and, yeah. and effort, and and probably even the scheduling. Because I'm sure they were like, they'd told, you know, not to put everything on management, but I'm sure they'd, uh, Don and the company, was like, we're delivering you a complete book. Right. And, and you're between that and the book release, so that's yeah. It's right. Tough. Exactly. Yeah, I got exactly. You. So at that point, they probably have it on the schedule, and are, it's going to come out in, in June or whenever they had it scheduled for. Well, I, and, I, and we're like, what can, what must we change? And those are the two things I remember. There may be some others, and maybe Alan would remember some others. But those well, were the two that I was like, but I'm not on that book. And it turned out to be the only hardback that I worked on as an editor. So I was like, <laughs> but but I kept my promise to Bill, which was important because Bill and I remain good friends to this day. Yeah, that's, um, and that's, yeah. I'm not on the book. The other funny 
and I, this may be the last funny story we have time for today. The other funny story about the about the Fiend Folio is that uh, Harold Johnson and I came up with a subtitle for it because under trademark law, in order to trademark something, your trademark has to be an adjective or something else. So Dungeons and Dragons Circle R is a registered trademark for TSR's role-playing game, right? So the Dungeons and Dragons R game because Dungeons and Dragons is an adjective that modifies game. Yeah. So Fiend Folio, if we're going to trademark that, had to have some kind of phrase after it that Fiend Folio can act as an adjective to. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, you, Did you know this, Dan? I did not know that. This is news to me. Yep. You're yeah, because the registration is a brand, and the brand has to be has to be something so it's like wonder bread right. you know so it's the the trademark is describing the product um so we had to come up with a tagline for this and harold and i had a, a, a long as i recall brainstorming session trying to come up with ideas for what we could say uh you know and what we ended up with was tome of creatures malevolent and benign as i recall is that right? That yes, is, that is correct. Right. So we so we did it. We we had the the art that came from England. We did the rest of the process. Maybe I don't even remember if I wrote the back cover or if that came for us with us. So we got all that done and it came out and printed. And it was it was well received and people enjoyed it. And uh, and it's a fun book. It's got a lot of interesting stuff in it. Uh, maybe not all the stuff that we would have put in if it had been an American product, but you know, in a way, that's good. That's unique. And sometime after it came out, and we we're all like, "Hey, it's a win. We did well. We did okay here." Uh, Don Turnbull came over, uh, and he was uh, walking around the third floor where we all were, and just kind of hanging with the the departments. And uh, it came up to Harold, and I was there too, and uh, maybe some of the other department members. And he said. About the fiend folio, I have a bit of a bone to pick with you. And Don is a tall, distinguished-looking British gentleman. And yeah. He's wearing a, a three-piece suit at TSR where, you know, in our area, we're all wearing T-shirts and jeans, right? Yeah. Cut-offs and stuff. Uh, I have a bit of a bone to pick with you. He's a, it, it, it turned out really well, but this this line here, the tome of creatures malevolent and benign, we have, we have in England. A tome is a a dry and and boring book that you wouldn't really want to read. So we'd rather that that hadn't been applied. And and Harold and I are like, oh yeah, we're very simple, sympathetic. And and to ourselves, we're like, after he leaves, we're like, well, we really nailed it, then, didn't we? <laughs> 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 it's like, yeah, what's your problem? Tome is a boring book that you wouldn't want to read? Did we not get that right? <laughs> exactly. That's great. I thought it was great because, you know, now hearing it, it, it felt British. I mean, the way it was said, a tome benevolent, no one speaks like that. So you, if you were trying to mimic that, it was perfect. So. Really right, know. yeah, no, we, we thought so too. And I don't think tomes are necessarily dry no. and boring, but it was... <laughs> But after you said that, Harold and I were like, yeah. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> Can I ask a question that's 
in typical fashion, but you're very detailed. Just only I would really care. Okay. Since you, you talked about changes, the necrophidius. And I know I, this is like, I barely remember that. Is that the tentacled one? Yeah. It's, it looks, it's a, looks like a brain with a, like a snake. On it. No, it's a snake. No, it's got the, uh, the vertebrae of a snake with a with Oh, a okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. With the head on it. Okay. Yeah. It was in White Dwarf. It was, I know this is usually important to all our viewers. In White Dwarf, it was undead, and then it became not undead. And I was always curious about why that got changed. And I want to know now, I feel compelled to ask if you're responsible for that change. Did we do that? Um, I don't remember. Okay. Fair enough. Can you, can you, if you can look at the type really carefully, if you look yes. at the ones I told you were changed, yes. And you look at the type very carefully, <laughs> okay, wake up. Maybe uh. We're inspecting no. type, James. Get out. We're inspecting type. It looks the same to me. But then again, everything yeah. on the drow looks yeah, the same I mean, to me. Unfortunately, you did such a great job, and we're not, you know, keen. We don't have keen enough so, vision to see it. So, so what we could do Alan is Alan and Harold and I spent what seemed like hours trying to find a font that we had access to that would match that font. It may have ended up being something boring like Universe. I don't remember what yeah. it was, but. We sweated that, and we could see it so clearly. Yeah. It was like, well, this is clearly, this is clearly different. What? We like, but will anyone else know? Well, maybe not. Maybe it's close enough. Yeah, so. and I, I, you know, probably again, like we said, you work in your own house and you fix things and you see it in everyone else, unless you point Absolutely. it out. Um, so one final question, and then I want to, you know, we want to catch up with, you know, we. We skipped a lot of your history, and we'd love to have you back. If you ever want to come back, we'd love to talk, you know, anytime. Uh, oh, yeah, that'd be fun. I didn't think this was going to, I didn't think we, I thought we'd get more into this time. <laughs> no, no, this is how, this is how There's we do it. a lot of history there, and hopefully it'll stay in the brain long yeah, enough. Yeah, we'd love to have you back in a few times, but um, people have asked, what's your thoughts on Tom Bombadil? Oh. <laughs> ah, great question. I, I love Tom Bombadil. Yes. Uh, I love Tom Bombadil. I think he's a, a. If you were to sign me as an editor of the Lord of the Rings, I would probably say, you know, John, <laughs> you probably should take this out. But oh, what, what was as that? As a reader, oh wait, I, I'm sorry. I love the. I think one of the things that's really successful about Tom Bombadil is that, is this is going to sound strange to you, is that he seems out of place with the all the rest of the world he is he's like a relic from an older part of history that he is the only glimpse of that part of history and when other characters you know who are knowledgeable about tom in the trilogy talk about tom they're like oh yeah him. <laughs> it's like yeah he's he's weird uh, you're you're lucky you had a good encounter with him because so, he could he could be very dangerous. He likes gnomes and he likes Tom Bombadil. So you're going to ask him the next question. It's it's a two for me, zero for you. Well, it's not two for you. First yes, of all, he said as an editor, as a professional, he would have had if he had the latitude, especially with his experiences with Gary. That he, you know, again, get, these books could have been better if they were let Steve manage it, but instead they let him just do whatever. But okay, because. By far, the most easiest accessible version of D&D &D is the BX version. That's, that is indisputable. 
I mean, you may have your love for Holmes. I'm glad you. I'm glad you feel that. You way. You may have your love for the original. You box told me set. you were AD and D people. Oh no, he, if you love DX, you're he's good. not just saying that. It's true. Go watch. No, I don't know why you'd want to, but go watch the old episodes. He uh, he loves it. Yeah, Moldvay is by far. Moldvay and Cook are by far. So, and here's my collection of the. Uh, I have the Hobbit, and you notice conspicuously, I don't. Then I have the uh, the two towers, and then I have Return of the King because. Well, Fellowship let's ask of the Ring. What is favorite? Let's, uh, no, you're, yes. you're, you're, you're priming the pump. So anyway, there is a book between here, Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, you may have heard of it. Which of these? No, not which of these. Oh, forget about it. No, okay. Including Fellowship of the Ring. Do you have a favorite of the four? Of the four, it, it's a toss-up between The Hobbit and The Fellowship. Yes! Probably the Fellowship. Yes! I love this guy. Yes! I love The Fellowship. I yeah, no. Thank you. And it's. I think it's the best of the movies, too. Thank you, thank uh, you, thank you. And, and well, historically... The, the movies is fine because there's no Tom Bombadil. There's, <laughs> the, the movies is what it should have been. If they made the movie into a book, it, it would have been perfect. I agree. I'm surprised they haven't novelized it. They, they that novelized everything way, else that started. Way, the way better. But, yeah, I mean, again, if you like poems and, and fanciful things and lots of stories about... Things you don't care about? Yes, the Phillips ring is wonderful. Yes, I love all those things. Yes. You say those things like they're bad things. <laughs> if, if, if you... I love the whole trilogy. Obviously, it's respon- the trilogy is basically responsible for my entire adult career. Um, my love of Tolkien is eventually was overcome by my interest in a girl. But, you know, my wife got into D&D because of Tolkien, too, eventually. Sure. I mean, that's the, the force that binds us together. I've been... I'm suscept- very susceptible to COVID because I have bad lungs. Uh, um, I was just born with them. It's the luck of the draw. But my wife and I both went up to Marquette to see their Tolkien manuscript exhibit this past year. The only like event that I've been outside of the house uh, for that had any number of people at it for ages. I, I love the trilogy. And that was an amazing, an amazing uh, exhibition they had up there. Awesome. I don't know if you guys know that all of, almost all of Tolkien's primary work is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I, I didn't know at that. Marquette University. No. That, wow. If you would have put that on the Trivial Pursuit thing, uh, if John Peterson, I would have never guessed that, even mm-hmm. though it's not D&D. But. So, so, Steve, I know we appreciate your time. Um, so what are you doing today? You know, you've, you're a prolific author. You've got some things coming up. You were t- mentioning a Kickstarter or something that's coming up. Why don't you mention what's going I on? I just finished a Kickstarter. Which yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I, and it's finished. Congratulations. I, yeah, well, thank you. Uh, it's, I think, maybe the fastest Kickstarter ever done. I started it on the 7th of, uh, of February, and it was, uh, and have delivered, or I am in the process of, it's in the mail, delivering all of the rewards now. It's done. It's over. So unless the mail screws it up, I'm pretty pretty good with that. So you missed out on that, but uh, that's based on two books of collections of my short stories that should be on Amazon probably. I'm thinking uh, end of May, June. Okay. Uh, for the general public release, Tales of the Blue Kingdoms one and two. I have a an ongoing serialized story called Monster Shark on a Nude Beach, which is in the tradition of Jaws. And uh, and the giant crab series by Guy Smith and other you know monsters on the loose things that is running now on Kindle Vela and you can uh, the the manuscript for that is completed and it's coming out currently 
twice a month, but starting next month, it'll be every week. And then maybe even more often than that to finish it up. So people can tune in for that. Uh, you can find that on Amazon or my URL for it is buffbeach.com. Buff Beach. Buff Beach. Nice. Uh, so that's going on. Um, I'm also currently doing a series called Atomic Tales, which I'm posting on my site, stephendsullivan.com or sdsullivan.com, which is a 1950s UFOs and giant monsters story. And it's uh, also being produced as full cast audio by Christopher R. Mim of uh, the Christopher R. Mim movies fame. Wow, that's uh, awesome. He, so that that's all ongoing and i've got uh there's a werewolf book that i finished the first draft on for uh, uh a very famous uh film werewolf from europe uh, that'll hopefully be coming out this year uh cross your fingers knock wood and uh and if you want to dive into my past there's a, a giant monster book called daikaiju attack and there's a uh, an ode to hammer and universal horrors called dr cushing's chamber of horrors i have a lot of stuff going on great and there's, there's more stuff that i've probably forgotten but i like to keep busy so. well that's wonderful and and again anytime you have something coming up we'd love to have you back on and promote it you know again we appreciate you going back 40 years but you know uh it's also you're a prolific writer you you know there's artwork we didn't even get really a chance to show of yours so again thank you for your time today we've uh people really enjoyed it on the chat there they were thrilled that you had a chance to uh give us give us you know a little, little bit longer your time but um uh when you get your next thing going please just you know you got our email you got our stuff come out and uh yeah we're showing you just something from i1 dwellers of forbidden city oh my okay blast from the past <laughs> kind of thing that's you right SDS? probably it could be sds it says sds it SDS. does sds so Hold on, his camera's right there. I worked on so many of TSR's products, I yeah. no longer remember. Yeah, so how many I worked on? Yeah, that's um, that's from yeah, Dwellers. Oh, from... Yeah, that's that must be mine. Yeah, S says SDS. So last wacky, yeah, I did four years worth of uh, or three years of maps and stuff too. So Dwellers in the Forbidden City and that kind of stuff. It's just there's a lot of stuff. So, so, and as long as I remember it. Yeah, well, that's why we're going to keep mentioning. Um, do you have a set of dice near you? Do you have a D10 near you? Oh, where did I just put my D10? Because we have to roll. Oh, no, I moved, I moved it into the other room. Oh, it's okay. I was, I was just using it is there, two nights ago. Is there a book nearby? Is there, is there a book you want to show? Because you can flip a random page. That's what uh, Zeb Cook did, right? Zeb Cook taught us that. When you don't have a D10, you just open up a book and you random page. There you go, Chamber of Horrors. Well, of course, basically. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors. Wonderful. With a wonderful Mark Maddox cover, and I'm going to just open it. Am I looking for the last two digits? Last, last digit. One last digit? digit. From zero to nine. All right. The one I just opened up says seven. That's seven. not bad. A seven okay. out of ten. Seven out of ten. That's wonderful. Congratulations. That's not bad. Our good. last one was a zero, and you weren't on it. So, that, uh, you know, a one we got, right? Is, I think so. I was going to say zero, ten, or zero. Zero is ten. Nine. Zero is ten. So, one to, to one to ten. So, you're way above average. Um, and one time our show went to 11, but that's a long story. Yeah, we won't a, get into Yeah, that's a very spinal tap moment, but... I have a law, a law about opening books, and the law about opening books is whenever you get a Sullivan's Sullivan's first law is okay. whenever you get a new project back from the printer, you will open it to a random page, and on that random page, 
you will find an error oh, that you missed absolutely. all the way through the, the production process. And then the expletives then, come out. That's Sullivan's Law, number one. And it had happened with that book. It happens with everything. <laughs> well, um, again, thank you for your time. You're very generous to stay on this long with us. We appreciate it. It's a great, we had a great time with you. So uh, we hopefully hear from you real soon. Stay in best of health for you and your wife. And uh, again, as you uh, do things, we'd love to hear from you again. It was great having you on today. Super. You'll, you'll have me on all the time then because I'm always doing stuff. Okay, yeah. Just shoot us a note. Yeah. Uh, Have a great weekend, everyone. And and so, so for GrogCon, uh, Grog GrogCon's our convention. I'm James. I'm Dan. And that's Steve. Say goodbye, Steve. So long. Remember, have fun. Use dice. Peace and love. This is big, a pushy, a big production. All rights reserved.